Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Chris Decker. Chris, how are you doing? Uh, good, thank you. Thank you for coming here. And I have to start by giving some context. I have to many people described your site, Low Tech Magazine, as the best site on the internet, or at least in the top three, in my opinion. And it's been very influential on me. A lot of people know that I've lived, I started unplugging my fridge a while ago, and it's been unplugged for over a year. And since May, I unplugged my apartment and have been living with my apartment physically disconnected from the electric grid for since May. So I'm in almost six months in. And your site is one of the main things driving this. In particular, Unplugging the Fridge came from your article about, or I guess it was your magazine's article. Someone else wrote it, I think, about how Vietnam, they ferment and they, yeah. they have different supply chains. And I, I was sitting there at the time thinking, reading it, thinking, look at my fridge and thinking, this is the most polluting thing I have right now. I wonder if I could go without. And your magazine, I think No Tech Magazine has the, has the which is also a sister site, yeah. has the tagline, we love technology. And most people, when they think of technology, are thinking of like the latest thing out of Google or something like that, which is a very different view of technology than you have. And so I'm thinking, if people in, in Vietnam can do it, maybe I can too. And so I just walked over and unplugged the fridge. And it opens up this whole, doing things like this, open up whole worlds that I feel like your, your ethos and your magazine draw out of what we can do and what technology can be. Yeah. And I just had to start with this. I kind of jumped around a bit, but how influential it's been for my life of. Well, you, you are, you already went further than I, because I still have my fridge though. <laughs> so um, I can learn a lot from my readers also. Well, but my website is running on fossil fuels. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, well, it's actually, um, it's quite some work to go low tech. And you cannot do everything at the same time. That's another. Uh, yeah. It's uh, first you have to re you have to investigate, and you have to experiment, and then you have to learn how to use the alternative way. Uh, so it's not so easy in that sense. For me, it's also um, yeah. I'm I'm still um, on the way to uh, to a low tech life. I'm not there yet. The mindset shift though is really big because it. It takes time, it takes effort, but it's rewarding and it's fun. Yes. And it's, yep. and the future that it leads to is, I mean, in many ways, things in the past, but also it's, how do I put, this is what I have I've trouble putting into words of like what it brings, because it's easy to say it brings community and connection and fun and joy. Those are there, but it's, it's something human, like humanity and timeless. Yeah, I think the world we live in now is, disconnecting us very much from each other but also from yeah our environment our natural environment let's say or i mean it's a very artificial uh, life if you're sitting in an office all day that's for me uh since i was young that was for me the the nightmare to to end up in an office in a suit and sitting all day in a in a glass building doing things that nobody cares about um yeah it's it's hard to to be happy in such an environment i think 
So from the moment you start going away from that and go, say, back to basics, you you immediately connect better to yourself, your environment, other people. And that's, yeah, that makes you feel better. And it's it's really true that every time you take a step, uh, you, because people often think that uh, I'm sacrificing things, but it doesn't really feel like that. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, I don't yeah. I don't feel unhappy because I don't have a car and I do everything by bike. On the contrary, I it's very hard to get me into a car even as a passenger because I hate the experience. While being on a bike or even on a train or in a bus, I find that much more fun because things happen uh, yeah, in, in public transport there's always things happening which cars you basically only connect to people if you crash into someone then then you have some some contact with with other human beings but if not you're just there isolated by yourself um yeah i, I find it very um not a nice experience yeah and i'm kind of torn between asking i want to talk about a few things i'm curious i i I heard on another podcast that you you once reported on technology and wrote about technology in a different way. I'm, I'm curious what brought you to where you are now, if you don't mind sharing. Yeah, so I I started my career as a freelance journalist and for newspapers and magazines in Belgium, where I lived then. And yeah, as you know, all the kind of science and technology news in, in the media is always about the latest innovation. It's never about something that is that's historical, or unless it is connected to something that they just found. Or, but you always need to to be up to date. It has to be relevant for some. Um, uh, yeah, it has to be new. It has to be novel. And so, for ten years, I basically uh, visited all these people who invented new things. But. That's where I learned that it's usually the solution they propose is not really a solution. And if you ask the right questions and you ask enough questions, then they often admit it themselves. So one one good example is the alga fuel that was uh, for a while in like the 2000s has been a hype that nobody talks any about it anymore now. Now it's all electric cars and soon it's going to be hydrogen cars. But then it was alga fuel and we would even fly planes on it. But then I remember one of these interviews with these scientists explaining me everything. And then finally the question like, but how much energy do you put in to the process of making this alga fuel? And then he was like, yeah, well, it's actually more than comes out, but... I think we will solve that one day, but of course they didn't. And the whole hype uh, disappeared. And so it's mostly from my experience as, yeah, maybe you could call it a high-tech journalist, a journalist that had to report on high-tech, that I learned that technology or, or how technology progresses is maybe not a solution, but the problem. And that's where where low tech magazine came from and how about your acting on these things as opposed to just observing them or, or writing about them cuz you've also incorporated these things into your life yeah i think that's very important to kind of practice what you preach because there's a lot of people talking about um or writing about sustainability and 
it's very easy to to get um like a um unrealistic positive view of of all these new technologies like solar panels or wind turbines if you if you if you don't really use them um so the fact the simple fact that solar energy is not always available like when it's cloudy or when the night falls this is a, a a problem that in many scientific reports or kind of uh, reports of environmental organizations they easily uh, cycle around it and and yeah we solve that but it's actually very hard to solve and um i think trying to to use the technology you write about learns you much more than than reading about it i mean you can learn a lot by reading uh, other people's experiences but still getting uh, your hands dirty really really gets you to know what you, what you're writing about and at the same time for me it's also um a way to kind of discover what are the limits of what you can do yourself for example that um yeah i stopped flying pretty uh pretty soon after i started to block and i started taking the train but then yeah in all these years that i've i've been traveling by train by doing it i learned that it's actually getting harder and so on one hand the politicians are telling us to stop flying but on the other hand the whole system pushes you into an airplane and um ordering a train ticket across several european countries it's uh, it takes you a day of work and then it's also very expensive so um yeah so by doing it you you run into the limit of you see where the the systemic problem is uh, for example also i don't have a smartphone and that's has several reasons one is that i i want to keep my um, capacity of for concentration for reading books i don't want to get disturbed the whole time but yeah at the same time the whole uh, society is moving everything to to the internet and the smartphone so if you now um like some days ago i was at a meeting and and one guy paid everything and then everybody started paying the guy with their phones and yeah well i i don't have I don't have that uh, service and then I have to pay cash, but then he cannot, uh, I just have a 50 euro bill. He cannot uh, return money. So you, you really discover if you hold on to these low technologies, um, how the rest of society evolves and how impossible it can become after a while to, to stick with your, um, yeah, with your dumb phone in this case. Everybody thinks that such a great thing like oh but the phone is much more convenient and then to me maybe this is too an extreme case but uh right now it's big that what's europe going to do to heat itself in the winter with low supplies of fuel and people have lived in that area for something like fifty thousand years yeah it's as if our and the first response from the german minister of i'm not sure energy or something was to fly to Qatar to get more fossil fuels, like burning more fossil fuels to get more fossil fuels. And no one's picking up that. I mean, where's the voice that says, what did people do for 50,000 years? Because how did we let our technology make us more dependent and less capable? I mean, it's fine when it works, but then we're extremely, it makes us more and more vulnerable and brittle and, and less resilient. 
Yes, exactly. Now this whole, um, like here in Europe with Ukraine and, and Russia and the war, it's kind of, they're, they're speaking about horror winters. And for some, like, I think Ukraine gets very cold. There's other countries where it can get really cold. But a big part of Europe, um, well, um, you don't really need eating to survive. I mean, the Inuits live in the coldest place in the world and they, they also don't have heating. So they have a candle in their igloo. Um, so if they can do it, then I think... Um, there's many ways to uh, keep yourself comfortable without a central heating system. And that can be a small local heating uh, appliance. It can be a hot water bottle. It can be blankets. It can be uh, sitting all together uh, under a blanket. Um, yeah, you can, it can be moving because the, the most important factor in in thermal comfort is the metabolism, the physical activity. So if you become active, you don't need heating. And it's one of the main reasons why um, our, our forebears needed less heating than we do. They were much more active physically. They were working uh, with their hands and their feet all day. And um, if you, like, for example, when I bike to the city and back, and it's like I'm two hours on the bike and it's winter, then I come here and I sit here in my T-shirt for another two hours and I'm not cold. And that's simply because the body has has produced a lot of heat and you kind of keep that, um, yeah, it keeps warm for a while. So it's not just at the moment itself that you are physically active, that you don't need heating, but even uh, a period afterwards. And I, I got to share all these things that, that I've read on your magazine because there's also, um, I'm thinking of, of many solutions. That you, how do I put it? There's like these big... Um, stone things where you'd put one instead of having a like a um one stove in the middle of a room which might heat something okay they would use the the heat to heat up this big massive i don't know what you call it yeah. like a wall of 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 heater and that and then they'd have like even the smoke would go these circuitous routes out so it would keep heating this thing and it would radiate heat for the whole rest of the day or how people, I mean, warm clothing, you, you only need to heat yourself, not the whole room. And then yes. what were some other things? In, um, oh, yeah, you also wrote about how a three-stone fire, people talk about how if you only use it to heat water, it's actually not that bad in terms of total pollution. But back a long time ago, you wouldn't just use it to heat the water. You'd also smoke the fish above that and you'd dry the clothes and you'd like the one, yeah. the fire would be used everything and then it becomes much more efficient than everything else. Yeah, that's the mistake we make when we call a fire inefficient and we just regard it as a heating uh, device, but it was at the same time many other things. It also provided light, uh, it produced the hot water, it dried the clothes, it smoked the, the fish and, and, the, and the meat. Um, so, yeah, it basically replaced everything or what we now have like a dozen appliances in the home that are all, all running on, on infrastructures and they need to be produced. Uh, they need to be replaced very often. So you have to compare that to one fire and then this one fire becomes an extremely efficient device. And it's i think it's very typical of this time that there is this um at least in europe 
the countries that I know that uh, burning wood has become like uh, the worst you can do. And it's considered to be uh, yeah, as uh, almost as actually as bad as fossil fuels for the climate. And that's very weird because it's not the case. The tree takes the, the carbon out of the, of, of the atmosphere and you put it back. And if you harvest the wood in a sustainable way through the coppicing or the pollarding, for example, without killing trees, just harvesting their branches, uh, there is nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's it's totally uh, circular in, in terms of emissions. And, okay, if people get that, then they start, yeah, but it's polluting. And then, well, also that you can uh, discuss first if you use what you mentioned before, like a tile stove or a ma uh, masonry heater, they also call it then uh, you have a very high uh, combustion temperature with very little pollution. And of course, the other point is a bit more complicated, I mean, a bit harder to sell, but uh, we are often kind of um, what we call sustainable. What is sustainable is not always healthy and the other way around. I mean, health is also kind of thing that we have come to expect like we want to be 90 years old and and we have, we want to breathe uh, uh, clean air and that's all nice and it, it could happen but it's not the same like what is good for the health of humans uh, is not necessarily good for the health of the planet um like the electric car is a great example like as a cyclist yes i love to i prefer to to cycle behind an electric car and not a gasoline powered car but um, is that electric car sustainable? Uh, I don't think so. But um, yeah, so. So I want to share what makes your magazine so interesting to me. I mean, certainly the writing and the topics. I mean, the number of people I've talked to about fruit walls and about how fish ponds used to process waste into food. And they used to be all over the and and wheelbarrows and I, these articles are really fascinating to me. But there's a bigger picture that when I lately I've been talking to people. All right, I got to get a little background. I went to the supermarket with the point of watching at least a hundred people, and I was looking in their shopping carts as they went through the um, the checkout, and every single item was packaged. Every single item. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know that some people will get fruit without putting them in bags, but when I was there. All of them, they even stuff, I mean, the, all the fruits had sticker stickers, but then they also put them in, in plastic bags. Yeah. And so I did this calculation. If 8 billion people, three meals a day uh, for, and if plastic lasts something like a thousand years and everyone has one piece of plastic out of there and maybe not everyone is eating it. Like, anyway, I come up with two quadrillion pieces of plastic, if you just made one piece of plastic per meal. Yeah. But of course we make much more than that. And meals are only one way that we produce plastic and plastic accumulates. We have no way of getting rid of it. And there's lots of things that accumulate like extinctions and PFAS and other chemicals. And when I think about it, the only number I can multiply by two quadrillion and get something sustainable is zero. And I ask people, I start asking people, can you imagine a world in which nobody pollutes? That means no flying. It means no driving, no long haul trucks, but it still means, and, and people can't imagine it. They really can't imagine it. And the few that could imagine it are in two camps. One is 
reverting to the Stone Age, which means for them, 30 years old age, mothers are dying in childbirth. If they get a slight cut, they could get gangrene and die. Or the alternative is some Mad Max dystopia in which we've all, everything's fallen apart. And it's roughly the same, except there's a lot more pollution. And it's a terrible picture. And I think in a world like if today people cannot imagine a bright future that way, and if they do imagine a future, it's worse. I think if we ask them, you know, they'll say, okay, I'll use less straws. Sure, whatever. If you want me to use less straws, they'll comply with that request. But they won't go any further because they don't want to reach the Stone Age or some dystopic hellscape. Yeah. And as long as that picture is there, they never want to go there. And you can push them all, you can give them all the facts you want about how carbon dioxide traps heat or how, I don't know, statistics, but that picture is a hellscape for them. And your picture of we love technology is all these stories of how did people make, how did people move 100 ton stone before to make something? And things that still exist today, thousands of years later, it's really interesting. And there's a trend in the stories of people would do these amazing things in the past and they'd keep developing more and more and more amazing things. And then there's often a switch that would happen when fossil fuels would start entering the picture and they'd lose the ingenuity. They'd lose the, 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 um, the humanity, the, like the, the technology would become isolating instead of bringing people together. But reading low tech magazine tells me there's a really great future potential of not polluting and still being ingenious and still being innovative. Just we don't use fossil fuels to do it. We don't use or, or nuclear or other things that pollute and other things that, that dehumanize and isolate. And it's a really beautiful future of all of what we love without the stuff that we don't love. And I think that's one of the things that drew you experimenting and you sharing these things is one of the things that made me feel like, let's try it. Maybe, maybe there's something there. And it's hard to, for me to communicate that. Like when you were saying about you don't like getting in cars, I'm like, oh my God, I, I was, I've been like, it, it hit me how much I don't like getting in cars. And, but I haven't actually said that. Or I used to always have ice cream in the freezer. And now fruit has so much more flavor and it's sweeter. And I just, kohlrabi, uh, not kohlrabi. Um, yeah, kohlrabi is in season now. And I got my first one of the season. And the first time I had it years ago, I was like, what is this? I never had it. And I was like, it doesn't have much flavor. It doesn't taste very good. But now that I haven't had anything with sugar in it in a long time, I couldn't believe how sweet it tasted. It was like really sweet. I'm like, I'm sure that they haven't changed the kohlrabi. I'm sure that it's my taste buds have become more sensitive. Yeah. And so I have more sweetness in my life than I did before. Yeah. There's some things like you mentioned plastic pollution. Um, so people call wood burning uh, unhealthy, but at the same time, we are... Uh, yeah, plastic is getting everywhere in the food chain and that is not going to end well. It's in our bloodstreams. Yes. So I think uh, because climate change uh, gets all the attention and rightly so, but things like that, like plastic pollution, 
uh, of course you never know but i i i'm afraid that in the long term this is this is just as bad as a problem and what you say about back to the stone age or or um these mad max futures i think that's one of the main things that i try to do with the magazine that um to show people that there are many possibilities in between these extremes so i i also noticed that that people think like ah but you want to, to take us back to the middle ages or the stone age or whatever but there are thousands of possibilities between um growing forever uh, with fossil fuels and going back to the middle ages or the stone age um like uh yeah i think the the website that i built the solar powered website is an ex a good example of that it's like yes it's still modern technology um it's not going back even to the 80s or the 70s i mean it's going back to the 90s in a way but it's it it's like 100 times more um like uh, uses 100 times less energy than a, another website so if everybody would do that nobody's talking about the energy use of the internet anymore but people have that idea and this that's also what uh, the subtitle of no tech magazine refers about but because it actually says we believe in progress and technology kind of has a double meaning like yes i i mean i do believe in progress and technology but at the same time it kind of refers to the fact that it has become an ideology a religion almost that we believe that technology will save us and science will save us and science and technology have done great things but at the same time they are creating a lot of problems like climate change and plastic pollution are also the, the consequence of that and i think uh, there is of course the fundamental problem and that's why people cannot really imagine a world uh, outside plastic and convenience and and because that's yeah it's it's what they have been telling us since we were a kid like uh, life is getting always better and science and technology will bring us more and more convenience and improve our lives and that partly happened but at the same time uh, it just happened for a part of the population for a great number of people in the world nothing improved on the contrary they have lost their traditional ways of doing things and they are getting pushed into this global system and um while before you had small farmers kind of producing food for themselves exchanging with their neighbors now they become part of a big yeah they, they have to work for a big company uh or they have to go to factories so life has improved for a small part of the of the global population and uh the question is for how long will this go on what because I think everybody now feels that um we kind of probably got to a peak convenience some years ago and things are not really uh, improving anymore. Yeah, you were talking about uh, there's a, a a movie I saw about the Hadza which is um a group that have lived in modern day Tanzania. They've lived there for something like 50,000 years and in this documentary they showed the Hadza territory in like 1940 and it's like a big chunk and then 1970, and it's like half the size. And then 1990, and it's like a quarter of the size. And now it's like this tiny little speck. And first of all, if we are living, if, if our culture is so abundant, why do we keep taking their land? 
shouldn't it go the other way if we if we have so much and yeah but of course the whole uh, high-tech society that we have in the west it only can exist because it can um it kind of abuses the rest of the world and the rest of the population to uh to produce the stuff that we need like uh we all know the typical example of the of the minerals in our smartphones yeah without these poor people uh, going into the mine and digging minerals by hand uh, we don't have this convenience and if we because that's a kind of the 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 dream of or 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 the myth of human development is that we gonna um get the whole world on board of our uh, convenient society but that is clearly impossible because who's then gonna dive into the mine and get the minerals no one's gonna do that anymore so we need as a high-tech western society we need to keep the other half uh, poor and and in dire circumstances because otherwise we cannot maintain our our level of comfort yeah and when putin invades ukraine everyone gets mad at putin but the invasion into just the Hadza territory forget about the united states taking over north america uh, you know over the course of centuries but we're playing the role of putin yeah, I mean, have I overstated that? Is that too strong of a statement to say that we have invaded other people's territory to take their resources? Yeah, I guess Europeans have basically uh, invaded the whole world. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not a geopolitist, uh, politicist, but, so I'm. I don't think I should say too much about the war. Um, but it's. Yeah, there's a double standard, definitely. Like uh, when the U.S. does things, uh, they are presented in a very different way than than when Russia does things. And I'm not not exactly a fan of Putin. I mean, I'm a journalist. I would would be dead or in jail already. But um, what surprises me the most with this war is that um, everybody seems to be eager to fight, and nobody seems to want to stop it. But okay, that's another topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, we are in that sense. Um, I mean, the West basically dominates the world, and there is few um, other contenders. Like, yeah, you have China and Russia, and that, and that's about it. And they're also not very attractive in in a way. In when you talk about our global system, one of the things driving it to me, the word addiction and the, the concept being addicted is a big piece of it, and on the on the individual level we're addicted to things like the smartphone apps we're addicted to the salt sugar fat uh yeah. that makes us crave more and more and the stuff you write about is not addictive it's not doesn't produce craving well low tech can be very addictive also but in a good way i mean if if you get lost in a kind of craft um if you start making things, uh, I don't know, uh, say basketry or something that can that can get very addictive too. But it's a different addiction. You feel, I mean, or maybe you should not even call it addiction. Uh, you just get um, very interested into something. But the smartphone, um, yeah, I'm 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 teaching here in Barcelona these days, and I'm, I ask the students who who has no smartphone. Of course, everybody has a smartphone. And who sometimes feel that they are addicted to their smartphone and wants to get rid of it. 
all of them. So people know that they're not that these things are not really making them happy, and at the same time, they cannot stop using them. And that's of course a typical uh, addiction that you also see with uh, with yeah with drugs and alcohol, uh, alcohol and and all this substance abuse that people want to stop but they can't. And when it yeah about the smartphone of course these um because i don't think that the smartphone should be so addictive it is of course designed to be addictive by all these companies like facebook and and i don't know the whole um, circus they want us to be on their products for as long as possible so they design it with all the knowledge we have from psych psychology and everything they design it very good in that sense that we cannot stop using it and that's why also when people tell me like, ah, but just get a smartphone and then you don't use it um, when you don't feel like, but that's not how it works. When I would get a smartphone, I'm just as other people, I would, I would get addicted too, because it's, it's how it works. It's like a gamble machine and I'm smart enough not to start gambling. Um, and so <laughs> I also don't want to use a smartphone even because the idea that you, you can use it in a kind of balanced way um i think that's very hard yeah i think when i think of the first industrial revolution the greatest minds were figuring out they were mechanical engineers and trying to figure out how to save labor but currently the brightest minds of our time are figuring out like where should the little red dot go so yes. that when they're online they're thinking oh i got to check the message and how do we keep them how do we and how I think his name is Clay Shirky. He's a professor at NYU who wrote about how years ago he he felt when he was teaching, it was okay for students to have laptops open because it was his job to be interesting and entertain not entertaining, but engaging. And if he wasn't, that was his problem, not not theirs. But then he realized he's up against not a computer, but the people on the other end, and they're they're getting paid everything, yep. you know, a lot to figure out how he can't compete against whole teams of people. Their whole job is like get them to open the computer once it, once they're on the computer to use the computer and to stay there and disengage from the rest of the world and just get stuck there. Yep. And you could, of course, design these software systems in a different way that they are useful because I don't uh, deny that they can be useful, but they could be useful without being addictive. And that just takes another approach uh to um to software design like the mastodon for example the social media it's not a very addictive thing it's just it doesn't have these elements so it's not um it's more like who's behind the technology and what is behind it and what are the purposes of developing this rather than than the technology by itself yeah oh now i have to share with you something that my listeners are used to but I have this term doof, which is food backward, because whenever people would describe fast food, comfort food, um, ultra processed food or processed food, they always have the term food in there. And that makes people, that fools people into thinking that it's food when it's not, because I think that the different, I mean, you can get corn off the cob, but Fritos or Doritos are in some way, they come from corn in the, but that to me is like saying that cocaine or crack is like a coca leaf and people have been chewing coca leaf yeah. without getting addicted for thousands of years yeah we're calling if people called heroin 
poppy seed extract, <laughs> they might think, oh, well, it's a, it's an herbal remedy. Yeah. It's not, it's, to it's completely different. And so doof, I will not call stuff that McDonald's sells food and I won't call it eating. It's consuming doof. Yeah. And I used to, how do I define what's doof and what's not doof? And I, I, one of the things that came to it, and this is what made me, what, what you said that made me think of it is like, I will, I don't have processed oil. So even if it's extra virgin olive oil, I won't use it. But I got a friend from Italy and his friends, they press it themselves in the way that their ancestors did. So he's like, Josh, you should try this. It's really good. It's not doof. All right. Edge, there's always edge cases of some, you know, every definition of every word in the dictionary has, you know, some people say it one way and some people say it another way. But what really got me was the intent of the person producing the stuff. If the goal is to produce craving, yeah. that when you satisfy it, it produces more craving. That's doof. And now suddenly social media and gambling and all these things feel like doof. Yeah, true. But of course, it, being in Spain, I'm very lucky here. I mean, the only people who go to McDonald's here are the tourists. I mean, a Spanish person would never go to McDonald's. Um, but sometimes like I've been, I, I lived for, I did a fellowship in uh, England for a month and there I was staying on a, on a campus. And you could only uh, find doof there. <laughs> there was no normal food. There was only fast food. So yeah, then it stops. I mean, if you don't, um, if you cannot find it, then then you cannot eat it. So uh, it it depends a lot on um, on the country where you are and the region where you are. But yes, it's uh, what we call food is is not very healthy, and um, I think it creates. I mean, I think there is research about that that it creates many diseases, and for that, then we need a high tech um, healthcare system to solve that. But if you would uh, just feed, if people would eat uh, well, yeah, we could kind of um, close half of the hospitals. Then I, I think. Yeah, the, the doof and hospital system are very what's well, so symbiotic. Yes, but of course it's yeah the the food distribution production system. Uh, I don't have to tell you that it co completely um, compromised because it's um, yeah it's controlled by a handful of companies that actually distribute the food. They drive the prices down. They um, drive the ever larger scale in, in agriculture. And yeah, the result is the food is everywhere the same. It's cheap, but it's not really food. And and it's also a very limited choice because you enter a supermarket and you think, ah, we have all the choice in the world and it's never been uh, so good. But then if you want to buy apples, there's just one species. Uh, there's one apple while uh, there used to be hundreds of them. But only the variety that uh, packages well and that keeps well during transport has survived, and the rest is gone. So, do we still have? Do we have the choice? All the choice we want? No. On the opposite, we, you have to eat what this handful of companies uh, has decided that that makes the most profit. And these apples, they don't taste anything. Yeah, I recently had an apple that was from a CSA, so it's um, a local farm. Yeah. And it's not, it's sold directly to the consumer and it's not advertised. And, and oh my God, I, 
I was like, what is this? How can people ever, how can anyone eat candy when things like this exist? Yeah. But most people don't know it exists. Yeah. Or, or if, but if in the times when I would eat plenty of Doritos or ice cream, if you gave me an apple, then I would say, where's the flavor? Yeah. Yeah. That's also part of the, that, that you get used to these, um, these strong sensations of fat and sugar. And salt, yeah, definitely. And salt, yeah. Now I want to go in a different direction for for a minute. Is you have a lot of articles that are guest written or about people who do this stuff. Uh, there's a lot of stuff by students, I think, who are moving in directions of of I don't know that I don't know what labels you call it, but regenerative and and playful. And ha have you formed a community or, or are you tapped into something? Because it feels like there's. Am I right that there's a lot of guest write, guest writing and featuring? I'm thinking of, uh, there's like a guy yeah. who came up with a shower that uses a lot less water. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually thinking that a few days that every almost every article especially in the in the in the last years is actually connected to to a person or or several persons. Like the shower is indeed uh, one guy a student uh, contacting me and explaining his uh, invention and then it becomes an article on the on the mist shower. And indeed um since say like six seven eight years there's more and more people involved in the beginning years it was just literally me sitting in my office writing uh articles all day but now uh it's much more um yeah especially young people who come to yeah do an internship or, or just cooperate and I kind of um, welcomed that after uh, so many years writing by myself. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to uh, to talk to some people. And also I discovered that, yeah, it's uh, like these are people that often in their early 20s and they are uh, quite amazing. Like I, I was not that smart when I was 20, but they can do a lot of stuff. They learn, they teach me a lot. Um on how to improve my work and and how organization and everything and they yeah they have great ideas and so it has evolved recently a bit more to um writing stuff indeed but also building stuff like uh, like the bike generator the solar powered website these are uh, then becoming articles but also an object comes out that kind of um, embodies a, a different way of, of life and a, a different way of thinking about the future. Um, is there community forming? Is it? Yeah, definitely. In-person stuff? And, and can you tell me, what's the emotional experience of this like? What's it feel like? What? Because I'm only reading from a distance. Yeah, it can be a bit challenging. I mean, that's a, that's a problem. Let's say that as the the um, the success of the magazine grew, it becomes harder and harder to to focus on the writing because there's always uh, something else to do. But yeah, at the same time, I I should not, I guess, worry too much about it. Um, and. Well, if uh, in the worst case, if I publish just one article a year, but it's a very good one, that that's also fine. But um, well, a community—it's a difficult question. You also have this whole lockdown period in between, and um, so I kind of 
because I was traveling a lot by train, but still I was traveling a lot. And then came uh, the lockdown and I got stuck in, in Barcelona. And since then, I've tried to um, kind of build more of a community here, which is working pretty good now. So I have several people that I work with now here. Uh, because yeah, it's also part of the of the message, of course. A sustainable world will be a, a more local world, and um, also there, I have to practice what I preach. So I'm trying to form a community here, uh, set up a place also where we can work together, and um, do events, uh, do talks, maybe, and build stuff together. Because that is. Um, also, another thing I learned, I, I used to do everything by myself, um, but that takes often a lot of time. Like if you have, you're missing some knowledge and then my, yeah, I always was like, okay, let's dive into, I don't know, quantum mechanics. But then I'm, I'm like a month, it takes me a month of time to understand that while you could also ask it to someone. And that is what I learned from working in like maker spaces and, and uh, co-offices that you can, um, if you're in a group of people and they all have their skills, then it's easy to find someone who can uh, explain you in five minutes what would take you uh, three weeks to figure it out. So these are also, um, that's what I learned in the process that I should not uh, do it all by myself. And since there are so many people now wanting to cooperate, that um, that makes it easier, of course. Although the guest posts, there are not as many as I would like, because that seems to be still the hardest uh, part. I've I've tried to find people who also could, because I have a whole list. I have like a, a list of hundred um, ideas for articles, and I, I don't have the time to write them all. So I would love to find more people to help me, but that has not really worked out yet. Um. A couple of times but it's just that i do really i every time i write an article i want to write the best article on that topic and that means that i go as deep as i can and until i feel like okay i've reached researched it everything and i i used to work like that when i was still a, a freelancer for newspapers and that was very economically a very bad approach to to journalism because i got paid for uh per word and it, if if you work um, twice as long on an article, but the article is just the same length, so I'm not earning more. And so I had really trouble to survive like that. And um, switching to my own, becoming my own publisher really uh, solved that since, yeah, you do a lot of effort to write one article, but then you also uh, enjoy the rewards of that uh, even 15 years later. There's articles that are 15 years old and they're still going around the internet. But of course, expecting that from other people, um, yeah, that's hard. <laughs> that uh, they send me an article and they think it's finished. And then I say, well, uh, it's a good first version, but now it really starts. Now we go to, uh, now let's find the, the real, really what it's about. So I'm a bit um, demanding a lot on that, uh, in that sense. I appreciate that. I mean, when I read your stuff, I'm like, someone really spent a long time researching these things yes, that's true. and getting into it. And I mean, that love and that passion shines through clearly. I think that's one of the big things that brings me coming back because on the face of it, a fruit wall is not particularly interesting, but then it is. I, it's, I mean, 
I guess I've been thinking about the ethos of it and I haven't really been thinking about the the care and attention that goes into creating a full story. Yeah. I mean, it often involves um, a lot of research and old books. Um, it quite often also involves materials in other languages that does not really speed up the process. Mm-hmm. And I think the average article, uh, especially in the, the last years, um, like in the beginning, I wrote shorter, shorter articles, but the, the average article is been is in the making for a couple of years, and it can be one, two, three, four, five years. And so there's this whole staple here um, of articles, uh, yeah, in development. And um, yeah, it's. I mean, when I started the website, people, um, I turned all advice on its head because people told me if you want to be a successful blogger, you need to uh, post often and you need to post short articles. And I thought, well, let's see. And I started posting. uh, Yeah, I don't post so often and I uh, publish extremely long articles and it worked. So this idea that people only want to read uh, quick, quick stuff, it's not really, uh, that's not really true. If you present them a very interesting topic and you, uh, you engage them, then uh, they are happy to read uh, very long articles. And those are the articles that I want to write because eventually, I mean, I'm doing it in the first place for myself. When I discover the mist shower or the fruit wall or the trolley boat, it's me who wants to know everything about it and and say the readers enjoy that I want to uh, satisfy my curiosity. But um, yeah, it's not really a commercial way of... Because if I, over the 15 years, I know which type of article would go viral and, and often, indeed, it has to be a, a short post um, and a bit provocative um, and then you you immediately get loads of traffic. But then a year later, nobody's looking at that post anymore. So I'm thinking more in the long term. And yeah, so quality over quantity, that is uh, very unlike the 21st century, but I need to follow, I need, I cannot do it differently. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, it's very doofy. I I remember the first time I met someone who doesn't read newspapers and I thought, but it's important to read the news and it's, and he found himself more informed not reading the news. And so I started practicing too. And I I, I gave myself, I think it was a six month period when I, maybe it's three, I forget the exact details, but I, I remember it was during an election season. I guess the U.S. is yeah. always in an election season. And I picked up the paper after six months and I was like, it's exactly the same. It, I mean, they're telling a horse race. I mean, it was a different state where the, ele- where the primaries were going on, but I was like, I didn't miss a thing. And he also told me about one time when he was, he was traveling someplace in a country where he didn't speak the language. He was like, I didn't speak a, a single word of the language. And so he saw a newspaper and I thought, well, I'll just look at the newspaper because I'm not going to, it doesn't yeah. count, you know, because it's not reading the news. And he picked it up and he, and he said he could feel the layout and the, he wanted to scan the headlines. He wanted to go in, even though he couldn't read a single word. And that's when it, you know, that's when it hit him and it hit me also that like, 
it's not just an innocuous, you know, they're, they want to sell copy because they want to sell ads and they, yeah, it's very similar to the smartphone. We feel we, yeah. And, and the vehemence that which people hold on to it is insane. Oh my God. I told this woman the other day, I was on a, a call with a bunch of people. And so I didn't tell her in particular, but I just mentioned how I haven't flown. And she was like, how can you possibly, your isolationist practices, how can you be a global citizen? And I was like, whoa, what's this attack? Like, what? And, you know, I just bowed out of it, but I was like, her anger was really yeah, I, I, self-righteous. And I recognize that, that reaction, but I'm also trying to not follow the news. And that doesn't mean I don't inform myself, but I, I read a lot of nonfiction books. And that gives you a much better view of what's going on. Because yeah, newspapers are indeed, um, I don't know, they're not what they used to be, one thing. Because when I was uh, early 20s, I mean, there were like still very good newspapers in Belgium where I lived. And the one I worked for, actually. Um, but if you look at it now, yeah, it's not the same. And even during those 10 years that I worked as a journalist, it was every two years or, or so we were told that our articles had to become shorter. And by I think by the end of my career there, they were like half the length that they were in the beginning. Uh, but again, since you get paid by the word, it also means that um, you get half of the money. And it doesn't really mean that it takes less time because the article is only half the size. But yeah, I... I really believe that the media is part of the problem. And um, especially since COVID, I, I completely stopped following it because that's where I lost it. And I um, started reading books again because I also kind of lost that habit for, uh, for a while. And now I'm uh, very eagerly reading nonfiction. I also bought a subscription to the New New York Review of Books, which is somehow a kind of newspaper but in a very slow way you know there's always they collect some books and then they write an article and then the, the topic is usually related to what's happening in nowadays what people write about in the newspaper but you see it from a very different angle and you understand much better what's going on and if you skim the headlines every day it it just it doesn't teach you much and it makes you afraid. And that's what I notice with many people. People have a lot of fear, whether it's for a virus or a war or climate change. And um, yeah, fear, outrage too. And fear sells, uh, but it's not very useful uh, feeling, you know, because fear kind of, yeah, uh, how you say it. Any chance you're going to submit an article to the <laughs> New York Review of Books? I don't know what they pay. <laughs> I kind of, no, I... I have not written articles for anyone else for a very long time because, um, yeah, to start with, it's already a challenge to keep Low Tech Magazine updated because I put so many effort in, in every article. And then second, yeah, I mean, what they offer in terms of payment, I'm like, if if I have to put it there and or I put it on my blog and I enjoy the, the benefits that it brings me for the, the next 20 years, then it's easy to make a choice. It's I rather put it on my own blog. Mm. Um, and that's maybe not, if I want to uh, grow the readership, um, I should publish also in other publications maybe, but 
I don't really, I have no complaints about readership. So, I mean, another reason why I started Low Tech Magazine is also because I got fed up as a, with uh, the, the life as a freelance journalist. I mean, you work very hard. I was literally working 16 hours a day and I could not pay the rent. And that was a bit ridiculous. And I don't know. Um, I mean, I've, it's not just Belgium. I have heard, uh, and Spain, it's also, I've heard from people in journalists in other parts of the world that it's basically the same. Well, that trend is also, people keep telling me that what I'm doing is impossible and drastically lowering needs. I mean, business people seem to get this, that if you want to make your company more profitable, lowering your costs is very important. And somehow they lose the concept of lowering your costs in life and yeah. needing less stuff. I mean, if you look throughout the ages for thousands of years, the, the minds that we, the people that we look up to have said, you know, need less. Neediness is like yes, killer to a, a good life. Whereas resilience and independence and, and um, just not needing stuff. Yes, but the problem is if we all start doing that, then the economy crashes. And that, where's the problem? I mean, <laughs> yeah, for me, fine. But um, so that is why, of course, people consume because there is a, a huge force that that uh, encourages them to consume. And but uh, like the fact that it's true what you say, like, uh, for instance, I never owned a car. And that is why I it's one of the reasons why I have been able to do a job that I like, because. I am my own boss and, and I, I follow my passion and I, I can live from that. But why? Because I need very little. Because if I would have uh, a lot of needs and I would want a car and a, a big house, and yeah, then it, I could not live from that. Then I would need to do a job that I don't like or where I sell my soul. And that's where many people find themselves in, in that situation. Like you, yeah, you have a big car, you have a big house and a mortgage need to be paid. And then yeah, you lose your freedom in a way. Like you have to accept the job that may be against your um, against your way of thinking, or you may hate it, but you do it anyway because you have to. Um, yeah, you have to finance your your way of life, and that I think is a good selling point for low tech sustainable living. Is that it buys you so much freedom that in the sense that you can. Um, you can live well with very little money. And that means you can um, earn that money in the way that you feel like. You don't need to do anything that you think it's um, negative or or boring or whatever. Freedom and how much it brings. It's very hard to convey to people how much freedom, I've, at least in my experience that I've gotten by using less stuff and, and disconnecting. Because they feel like, yeah, they feel like like the, in America, there's this big picture of like driving your convertible down the road is like freedom, but yeah, take a bike. <laughs> it's yeah. the same. It's even better, of course. But then cycling in America, it's kind of like suicide. So the say the system needs to work along with you. Um, there are some countries uh, like when I was in England, I didn't dare to get on a bike because not just they drive on the wrong side of the road, but they also drive very dangerously and they don't respect cyclists while uh, oh. here in spain it's the opposite um they really have respect for cyclists and there, there's not even many bicycle paths but still i prefer to to cycle here than in any other country because the drivers are respectful 
I want to ask one question that I mentioned how I describe your site as one of the best sites on the internet. It's sometimes the best site on the internet, in my opinion. Well, thank you. There's a couple others that I wonder if you, do you know the, there's a, a YouTube channel called Not Just Bikes? And then there's a guy at, he's just retired from UC San Diego, a, a professor of physics who's got a, a blog called Do the Math. And these two. Oh, yeah. That's one I know. Okay. Because there's so much similarity. There's something, there's an ethos and a, and a way of looking at depth and really thinking things through that you and Tom Murphy share. And then also, so you haven't seen Not Just Bikes on YouTube? No, that's, I don't know. I'm going to check it out. Oh, I think you'll like it. Uh, I'll give you a preview. It's this guy who grew up in Canada and lived in, uh, in many cities around the world. And he and his family eventually settled in, I think, Amsterdam, in Holland. Okay. Yeah. And he started wondering, why do I like these cities so much? And he thought, well, because of bikes. But, and then, no, it's not just bikes. It's all these other things. And <laughs> he really loves urban planning and cities, and he gets into it. And he's, he's got a really wry sense of humor. He's been on the podcast, too. Okay. Yeah, of course, the Netherlands is a very interesting country. I come there a lot. Uh, it's unique in the sense that, I mean, like, I'm from Belgium, which is just next to Netherlands. I mean, my my hometown is 30 kilo, kilometers from, from the Netherlands. And they speak the same language. So, uh, But the culture is completely different. It's like you cross the border and there's another, uh, you're in another world, another universe almost. Like all the houses are small. The cars are small. Um, people are modest. I mean, in, in materially, not in the way they talk. They're the opposite, actually. But but yeah, it's a very uh, interesting country. And um, how they never forgot or dis discarded the bicycle is, is very uh, interesting. Because everyone's always talking about Denmark, but, but the Netherlands, yeah, it's it's really cycling paradise in the uh, yeah, actually, one of the things I learned from that channel is that it's not that they never gave up the bike. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, it was overrun with cars. Yeah, that's cool. And it was deliberate, conscious intent. And so he goes through that a bunch. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm going to check it out. Sounds, uh, sounds good. Yeah, I put the link in the chat. Yeah, thanks. So that's, what I'm tr that's why I have no tech magazine for, like, say, the sister site. And um, because there's, of course, uh, I'm not the only one and um, I'm not the first one. So when I started Low Tech Magazine, it was really a feeling. It did, I was not really inspired by someone. It was just how I felt like I'm going to go against this idea of progress and technology. But then over the years, I learned that, yeah, I'm, I'm in a tradition. There's like, there's a philosophers, um, there, there's a lot of activists before me who basically said the same. And, um, there are also now, there's many people who, who basically say the same as I do. And maybe they focus on the economy. Like you have this whole degrowth movement. We sell, we, we say the same things. It's just that we focus on another part. They focus on the economy. I focus on the technology, but we all feel the same and we try to go in the same direction. So, and there's more and more people because when 10 years ago, when I gave a talk, uh, uh, or when I published the article, there were still of these, these stupid comments of people making fun of me. And that does not really happen anymore. I mean, it sometimes does happen, but. Things have changed in that sense. Like, um, 
I think um, people are more open to alternative ways of thinking than they were 10, 15 years ago. Well, I love Low Tech Magazine. It's changed my life as much as anything I can think of, and I'm just getting started. I recommend to people to read it, and each article, as you've heard, I, I, I consider each article on its own very interesting. The more articles you read, the more that something underlying that I have trouble putting into words, but comes from reading them of, of this appreciation for innovation and ingenuity, and but driven toward human joy and freedom. So I hope everyone, if they've made it this far, just start, go over there and start reading that. <laughs> and once you finish listening to this episode, <laughs> Krista Decker, thank you very much. Thank you too. And good luck with uh, the off-grid life. I'll keep you updated. Yes, please. <laughs> How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.